Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to Me. And if you will put away your detested things from My presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in Him and in Him they will glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it, because of the evil of your deeds. We are just 25 verses into the second message of Jeremiah. Second message, the book of Jeremiah, like all the prophetic books, is a series of messages. And Jeremiah receives this message from the Spirit of the Lord. This is the second message. And as we get into this, the second message, it runs from chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through the end of chapter 6. That's all one message. So we're going to see if we can't complete it tonight. But what's amazing to me is already this deep into the message, while judgment is absolutely certain, the Lord is still calling for repentance. Because if man will change his mind and turn back to the Lord, the Lord will turn from his wrath. Now he knows Judah is not going to do this. And yet, because of the kindness of his heart, because of his absolutely gracious nature, God continues to call out repent. He continues to invite the people to come to him in repentance. He uses two examples to explain the significance of Judah's repentance here. An agricultural example and a physiological example. The agricultural one is fallow, thorny ground getting broken up. Verse 3. He indicates that the plow of repentance, repentance is like a sharp plow that can dig through the outer layers of weedy, thorny patches of ground. If you've ever had a massive weed patch that you've had to work your way through just to get to the dirt underneath, you know what we're talking about here. The weeds and thorns will cover over and become a thick mesh of ground cover against getting into the soil. God wants His Word to get into the soil, and so that ground cover needs to be pushed back. It needs to be torn up. It needs to be cut through, and that's what repentance does. He gives a physiological example, talking about the circumcision of the foreskin of the heart. It's a graphic example, but absolutely appropriate to Israel because they understood circumcision. Circumcision as a picture of the covenant that God would bless the seed of Abraham. And through Abraham's seed, God would bless all the nations of all the earth. But here he refers to the heart. Circumcise yourselves, verse 4, to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. And what he's talking about, the idea is the removal of all natural obstacles to the supernatural power and will and purposes of God. The natural man gets in the way. The natural heart gets hard. And so God says, remove all that is natural in your life that serves against me. Do you all have things in your life that are natural behaviors, natural inclinations, natural interests that are actually getting in the way of God getting His Word into your heart. That's what He's talking about here. Repentance removes those obstacles. But I want you to notice something else quickly here in the first four verses as I try to move as quickly into the message. The impact of repentance 
This is remarkable to me because it's obvious that repentance is not limited to the personally penitent. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, your repentance is not limited to you. The impact, the effect of my repentance is far bigger than the fact that I have just repented. He says in verses 1 and 2, he says, If you will return, O Israel. He says, If you will put away your distested things. And then skip down to the end of verse 2. Then, who will bless themselves? The nations. This is bigger than Judah. Judah, if you will repent, the nations will bless themselves because of me, the Lord says. If you repent, the whole world gets blessed. Tie that down to your life. If you repent, your family is blessed. If you repent, your church gets blessed. If I repent, my community gets blessed. My lack of repentance can therefore hold back the blessing of a community, of a state, of a country. God would say to you and me today, it's not that America corporately needs to repent, it's that each individual needs to repent. And as we as individuals repent of our wandering from the Lord in America, guess what? The country gets blessed. And if the nation gets blessed, the nations, plural, can be blessed as well. That was God's original intent with Israel. Genesis 22:18. He said to Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, you Bible students remember, that's the first servant song in Isaiah, speaking of Christ. And the Lord says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. The light of the world, the light of the nations is Jesus. Is Jesus as the servant of the Lord. But Israel as the covenant people could have borne that light if they had repented. The blessing that God intends, and I say intends future tense, not past tense, it's not the blessing He intended, it's the blessing He intends for the nations of the world would be put on hold because Judah refused to repent. Had Judah repented, the blessing could have come much sooner. But now Judah in her treachery is a light going out. Israel has already rebelled and gone dark. Judah now is going dark itself. Brothers and sisters, as a fellowship, as a church, the question before us is what will our light be? Will it be dimly burning or fiery bright? Will will we be a church that's lit up with the gospel? That is so bright people can barely look at us but they can't not? They can't stand not to because it's not us that they see. It's the glory of Christ. It's Jesus, the light of the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And all this to say our repentance individually and collectively is critical Our obedience matters because it impacts far more than just ourselves. My decision to obey the Lord, my returning to Him when I have wandered, has an impact far beyond me. I read again, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, the things which God announced beforehand, Peter said, by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. 
Therefore, repent and return so your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. And if Jesus comes, guess what? All the nations of the world get blessed. That's the idea there. Now, for the rest of our study, we're going to outline it in three parts. And part one, picking up in verse five, part one is the notification of invasion. The notification of invasion. Verse five. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, blow the trumpet in the land, cry aloud and assemble yourselves and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Lift up a standard towards Zion. Seek refuge. Do not stand still. For I am bringing evil from the north, a great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket, and a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. For this put on sackcloth and lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. It shall come about in that day, declares the Lord, that the heart of the king and the heart of the princes will fail, and the priests will be appalled, and the prophets will be astounded. Judah is put on notice. Now, gang, this is during the reign of Josiah, who died in 609 B.C. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is barely even coming to the throne by now, at this point. He's just coming into power. Perhaps when... Jeremiah received this, unless Jeremiah received it earlier in the reign. And yet it writes as though Nebuchadnezzar is already on the march. Babylon is on the move. The the invasion is imminent. Babylon will invade, the Lord says. But why don't they right away? Because God's grace is such that He would allow time. Time for repentance. Time for turning. Knowing that it's not going to happen, He allows it anyway. And he puts the people on notice. He talks about the lion, verse 7. The lion that's gone up from his thicket. It's the symbol of the goddess Ishtar. The lion. The Babylonians attributed their power to Ishtar. And therefore the lion was a very important symbol to the Babylonians. The lion also symbolized their king. Nebuchadnezzar considered himself a lion. He had 120 glazed brick lions that were decorating a wall which ran all along a street in Babylon called the Processional Way. The Processional Way was a place of great parades and a route where mighty military salutes would take place and they would march along the Processional Way and go through what's called, many of you know, the Ishtar Gate, which is a massive gate there in Babylon. 120 glazed brick lions and inside... His palace, Nebuchadnezzar had two 18-foot solid gold lions because he considered himself the lion. And the lion has now come out of his thicket, the destroyer of nations. Interesting, the symbol of Judah was also a lion, wasn't it? And yet the lion of Babylon is about to devour the lion of Judah. It's ironic how God chooses His instruments of punishment. Verse 10. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying you will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. And suddenly Jeremiah just, his emotions emerge. This is one of the reasons why Jeremiah is considered one of the most personal prophets 
is he has a hard time prophesying without speaking his own words at the same time. He reacts. He responds to the prophecies that the Lord gives him. And in seeing this invasion, in giving, being given this notice, he, he can't hold himself back and he cries out, Surely you have utterly deceived this people. His own feelings will dot the prophetic text. And verse 10 is the first of five times that we will see tonight where he interrupts the prophecy in response to the message of the Lord. And I'll show you those as we get to each one of those. Jeremiah right here responds to the Lord. Verse 10 is also considered the most difficult verse to understand in the book of Jeremiah. And perhaps you can tell why. Let me read it to you again. Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem. Saying, you will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. That's pretty bold, Jeremiah. Is he really blaming God here? Is that what's going on? Is he actually calling God deceitful? Well, understand a couple of things. First off, God is not deceptive, nor does He deceive. The Bible is very clear about that. Numbers 23.19 The Lord says about Himself, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said, and will He not do it? Or has He spoken, and will He not make it good? There is absolute perfect integrity in every spoken word of God. If He says it, He's going to do it. And He has proved this time and time again. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul wrote, God cannot lie. Are, is, are there certain things God can't do? Yeah, one of them is He can't lie. He absolutely cannot lie. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, tells us it is impossible for God to lie. So even if Jeremiah is accusing God of deception, we know very clearly the Bible says deception is not a possibility with the Lord. But understand this too, and you can go through the whole book and look for it. Never once in the entire prophecy of Jeremiah does the Lord speak peace for the nation of Judah. Not one time. Jeremiah here says, but you've utterly deceived the people, saying you will have peace, whereas a sword touches the throat. Well, where's that coming from? God didn't tell that to Jeremiah. Jeremiah didn't tell the people they would have peace. Where's it coming from? Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13, which we'll see in a few minutes here. He says, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. God says, Jeremiah 6.14, They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. The false prophets spoke peace. Word on the street from the false prophets, from the other prophets who claimed themselves to be prophets of God, Word on the street was, there's going to be peace. Peace. The people are stressed out. They're upset. They're worried. They're hearing Jeremiah talk about Babylon. And as they freak out, the other prophets go, hey, peace, dudes. Peace. Relax. Jeremiah 14, 13. He says, ah, Lord God, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine, but I will give you lasting peace in this place. How must that have felt to Jeremiah? Because the word he's getting from God is destruction, is decimation, invasion. This is all what Jeremiah is hearing. And he's just preaching the word he's been given. But all the other prophets are preaching peace. Jeremiah has got to at some point go, am I missing it here? 
They're saying peace and you're saying war. I'm listening really hard, but I keep hearing war. I keep hearing destruction. What's going on, Lord? The false prophets speak of peace. The true prophets of the Lord, they indicate destruction is on the way. By the way, it will happen again. More false testimony about peace in Israel. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And so be careful because Satan will use the word peace sometimes when peace is not what's coming. And he uses it to lull people into a false sense of security. As I sometimes wonder if the church hasn't been lulled into a false sense of security. While the false prophets say, peace. So why does it sound like Jeremiah is blaming the Lord here? Well, to understand his angst in verse 10, you got, I say this a lot, you got to put on your, Jew, your thinking yarmulke. Got to think like a Jew. You've got to read the text from a Jewish perspective. I have a marvelous commentary for those of you who like to pick up commentaries. Charles Feinberg. It's not an easy one to find. It's mostly uh, used books now. But Charles Feinberg's commentary on Jeremiah. Feinberg was raised an Orthodox Jew. He was studying for the rabbinate. Uh, he, He eventually wanted to become a leader in the Jewish faith, a leader in the synagogue, a rabbi himself until he came to faith in Jesus. Kind of studied himself into faith and seeing who Jesus truly was. Gave his life to the Lord and went on to study and became, uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, ended up a great theologian, and he wrote this commentary on Jeremiah. I love commentaries in the Hebrew Scriptures written by people who were raised Jewish because they've got the right mentality. Feinberg says the following, The solution lies in the way the Jewish people spoke of evil in a world ruled by a righteous God. How do you deal with it? How do you talk of evil? When evil happens, how do you speak of it? And this is how they do it. Feinberg says, they say this, God is said to do what God permits. In other words, if God allows it, they speak as if He did it. It's not saying that He did it. In other words, Jeremiah comes along and he says, you have deceived this nation. What Jeremiah is saying from a Jewish perspective is, this nation is deceived and you've allowed it. You've allowed the deception of this nation. That's what Jeremiah is trying to figure out. Why have you allowed this to take place? The fact that the false prophets are out there. Lord, why don't you just smash them? You know, why don't you just flick them off the face of the earth? Wouldn't that be great if whenever there's a false teacher, I gotta be careful because if I speak falsely, this would be me, but a great hand came out of the sky and just went ping! And the pastor went, wahoo! You know, kind of like Goofy in, in the Disney, wahoo! And he's gone. Why don't you do that, Lord? Why do you allow these false prophets to speak? That's what Jeremiah is struggling with. Why is it allowed at all? God, for his part, does not answer him. Verse 11. In that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a scorching wind from the bare heights in the wilderness in the direction of the daughter of my people, not to winnow and not to cleanse. A wind too strong for this will come at my command. Now I will also pronounce judgments against them. So judgments coming. I guess in a way he does answer Jeremiah in that the false prophets are going to be judged along with everybody else. 
Judgment's coming in the form of a scorching wind. Not a winnowing or a cleansing wind. What's the difference? A winnowing wind, a winnowing breeze. Think about those on the threshing floor and how they would separate the wheat from the chaff. They would take like a pitchfork and dig it down into the wheat and literally throw it up into the sky. And as the breeze blew by, the chaff would blow out of it and the good kernels would fall to the ground and they would separate. And God says this wind coming is not a wind of separation. It's not to separate good from bad. This is a scorching wind that will wipe out everything. Nothing survives this wind. All of Judah is going to be burned by this scorching wind. Verse 13, Behold, he goes up like clouds, and his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles, speaking here of Nebuchadnezzar and his army. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Verse 14, Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Once again, in the midst of the notification of invasion, the Lord calls for repentance. He keeps saying repent. He keeps giving opportunity. He says here, wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you might be saved But remember, Judah's repentance was treacherous. Their returning to the Lord was deceitful. They were coming back to temple, as we talked about Sunday, but their hearts weren't coming with them. Their hearts were still in the high places. Their hearts were still in idolatry. And they're deceptive. Jesus said to the Pharisees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Which simply means, if you truly repent, the fruit will show. If you truly repent, if you're repenting of the heart, if it's genuine repentance, it's going to cause a change in your life. If it doesn't cause a change, you didn't repent. You can say the words, you can come forward, you can bow yourself before the Lord, but if there's no life change, true repentance did not happen. But there's a key here, and I want you to note this. The word lodge here in the Hebrew is lun. Lun. And it means to dwell, to abide, to take up residence. Listen again to God's question in verse 14. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? We're not talking about something that gets lodged like a, my kids, they, they hate roast beef. Hayden and, and Honor Marie cannot stand roast beef because it gets lodged in their teeth. right? And I'm like, eat the roast beef and brush you, you don't have to deal with that all night long. You can actually brush or get a toothpick. You know That's not the lodging we're talking about here. It's not sin that just kind of gets stuck in the heart and you just need to dig it out and, and off it goes. We're talking about taking up residence. How long will you allow sin to take up residence in your heart? A couple things to note about sin here. Number one, it's the dysfunctional house guest. Sin is the dysfunctional house guest who doesn't leave. They come for a short visit and next thing you know, three weeks turns into a month, turns into six months and you're going, when are they going to leave here? And the idea, he says, how long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? How long will your wicked thoughts live there? You've got to boot the lodger out. You've got to kick out the sin that is sticking, that is staying, that is residing. That pattern of sin behavior, I don't know what it is for you. I know what it would be for me. 
We gotta get that stuff out. We've gotta kick it out. Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then he goes on to do several verses, beautiful verses on baptism. To my mind, the most graphically portrayed picture of baptism in Scripture. It's beautiful how he describes dying to self like being buried with Christ as we go down into the water and raised up to walk in a newness of life. But he says if we've died to sin, why do we keep living in it? Or we could put it this way, why do we keep allowing sin to lodge with us? To stay in our hearts. Boot the lodger out. Okay, but how do I do that? How do I do that with that really, you know, pernicious sin that does not want to leave? And I've tried, but I, I just I can't seem to put... Here's the deal. Here's the answer. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You want to kick sin the lodger out? Invite Jesus to lodge within you. You invite the Father to take up residence in you. How do I do that? You love Him and you keep His Word. If anyone loves me, He will keep my Word. And we're going to come make our home there. We'll lodge there. And there's nothing dysfunctional about Jesus as a house guest. He is the perfect house guest. He's the ideal. He's the one you never want to leave. Invite Him to come in. Sin has nowhere to stay. The question is, what lodges in my heart? Who's living there? Or what's living there? Is Jesus alive in my heart? Verse 15, For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims wickedness from Mount Ephraim. Dan is the northernmost boundary, not of the kingdom of Judah, but of the land of Israel. Okay, the land that God promised to the people, Dan is in the far north. And that's the direction that Babylon is coming. So he says, a voice declares from there, and proclaims wickedness from Mount Ephraim. Mount Ephraim is the northernmost border of the kingdom of Judah. So again, here he comes from the north down to the northern border of Judah. Coming on down, the wickedness is coming. Report it to the nations now. Proclaim over Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a far country and lift their voices against the cities of Judah. Like watchmen of a field, they are against her round about. Because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought these things to you. This is your evil. How bitter. How it has touched your heart. Second thing to note about sin, not only is it the dysfunctional house guest, but sin is the diseased heart wound. It's the diseased heart wound. God says here, and you can hear His compassion overflowing even in this statement of judgment, how bitter, how it has touched your heart. The heart wound of sin is bitter, gang, because it's self-inflicted. The wounds of my sin, I didn't get from someone else. I got them from me. I got them from my choices, from my decisions, from my acceptance of that terrible house guest. And it has left a wound on the heart. How do we heal the wound? Again, only one way. By the residence of Christ. By the blood of Christ who washes over us and presses out every wound and heals us completely. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you're the prophet. 
not of Judah, but the prophet of America. God has called you as a prophet for this nation. If you're anything like me, you grew up loving this nation. You grew up a patriot. You grew up singing about the beautiful spacious skies with amber waves of grain and purple mountains majesty above the fruited plains. And I think I've told you before, I can't hear that song without choking up. Love this country. And suddenly God has called you to be a prophet to declare the destruction of this country. How would you feel? What would you do? How would you deal with it? For the second time, Jeremiah now pours out his heart. Verse 19, Jeremiah speaking, My soul, my soul, I am in anguish. Oh, my heart. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. Because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Disaster on disaster is proclaimed, for the whole land is devastated. Suddenly, my tents, Jeremiah says, are devastated. My curtains in an instant. Oh, how long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? What Jeremiah sees and what he hears from the Lord, what he gets both in vision and in understanding, is absolutely breaking his heart. And so he longs to know the end of this misery. How long do I have to bear this up before these things finally come about? I, I read that and I thought, Lord, do I ache with that kind of misery over the demise of my country? Or do I just get mad at the White House? Or angry with Congress? Do I just get frustrated with those stupid Americans who don't know how it's supposed to be? Do I get angry with the laws and the rules and the law givers and the law makers and the legislators? Or does my heart break for the sin that is overtaking my nation? God has declared this judgment to be greater than Judah. In fact, if I understand Scripture correctly, God has declared a judgment upon the entire world, which includes my nation. A judgment over the whole world. And He reveals it to Jeremiah. Watch this. First He says in verse 22, For my people are foolish. They know Me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good, they don't know. You're like mature adults when it comes to evil, but little kids when it comes to doing good, you have no idea what to do. You don't even know how to do good, but you know how to do evil. This is leading up to a terrifying now global vision. Verse 23, Jeremiah is speaking. Here's his vision. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was formless and void. Sound familiar? And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heaven had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before His fierce anger. Jeremiah describes a cosmic catastrophe. This is no longer Judah now that we're talking about. Not in this part. Not in this vision. Jeremiah sees something beyond that that terrifies him. 
beyond the destruction of his own land. At first I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I looked on the earth and behold it was formless and void. Oh, maybe he's talking about going back to creation. No, this is creation in reverse. Because even as he continues to speak, the mountains are there and they're quaking. The hills are there and they're quaking. The fruitful land is decimated. The birds are gone. There's no man there implying that there was at one time. And what Jeremiah sees is an awful cosmic catastrophe. As though the beautiful work of creation has been canceled out. And now everything is formless and void again. The Hebrew phrase there is tohu vabohu, which is the same language that is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, when the earth was formless and void before God created. And now Jeremiah sees it return to that to that state. Again, creation in reverse. Feinberg says all nature is upheaved and no area of life, geological, terrestrial, celestial, human, ornithological, horticultural, demographical, no area of life is left untouched. The apocalyptic overtone is unmistakable. (laughs) It's as though Jeremiah, in seeing the vision God has for Judah, sees beyond it and slips into a vision of worldwide judgment going on. Verse 27. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark because I have spoken, I have purposed, and I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. Well, what if the people repent? Well, then he would. But he won't because he knows they won't. At the sound of the horsemen and bowmen, every city flees. They go into the thickets and they climb among the rocks. Every city is forsaken and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what will you do? Although you dress in scarlet, although you decorate yourself with ornaments of gold, although you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you make yourself beautiful. Even as you walk the red carpet for the Academy Awards. It's vanity. And then he says, your lovers despise you. They seek your life. The word lovers there in the Hebrew, it's agab. It means illicit lovers. Adulterous lovers. It's not talking about idolatry. It's talking about the other nations. The Lord's saying, you have gone into idolatry with the other nations. You have made the other nations your lovers. But guess what the result is? Now they seek your life. They don't love you. They want you gone. Verse 31, For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, Ah, woe is me, for I faint before murderers. And that is the notification of invasion in summary. Part 2. The condemnation of corruption. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1. The condemnation of corruption. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Again, I ask the question, does this sound familiar? 
You Bible students know the story. Genesis chapter 18. God says, Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham's nephew Lot lives there. Abraham says, you know, Lord, far be it from you, Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? What happens if I find 50 men who are righteous in the city? Will you spare the city for 50 righteous men? God says, for 50, I'll spare the city. How about 45? (laughs) As Abraham begins to think this through, for 45 I'll do it. Well, if you'll do it for 45, surely you'll do it for 40, right? For 40, I will spare Sodom and Gomorrah. How about 30? All right, Abraham, for 30. Would you do it for 20? (laughs) You see, Abraham bargaining with the Lord all the way down to 10. And God says, if there are 10 righteous men left in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy them. Well, you can guess how many people were left in Sodom and Gomorrah that were righteous. Just one. And God got him out. That was the condition of Judah. Now the same application is made. If you can find a man, just a single man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, obviously besides Jeremiah, if there's one, I'll pardon her. Although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. As the Lord lives would be similar to our saying, God bless you. God bless America. How many people sneeze and someone says, God bless you, but do they really mean God bless you? Do they even know what they're saying or has it just become an empty phrase? Is it swearing falsely? Judah was corrupt. This, by the way, is the condition of a world without Christ. As Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Will there be one? Even one? Romans 3.10 tells us as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. It's hard to believe that things could get this bleak. But they were this bleak in Judah. They were this corrupt. But the Lord says, for the sake of one, I will pardon Judah. So Jeremiah goes looking. Verse 3. Jeremiah is speaking again. O Lord, do not your eyes look for the truth? You have smitten them, but they did not weaken. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. So Jeremiah explains right there why God has given Israel and Judah fits. Why He has smitten them. Why He has consumed them. It's so they would turn around and repent. Why would a father strike a child? For one reason, if he is a good father... Discipline to correct behavior. Then I said, verse 4, Jeremiah speaking, they're, they're only the poor. They are foolish. They do not know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of their God. So at first, Jeremiah thinks the problem is the lower class. I went and I looked at the poor people, and they're not learning, they're not understanding it. They don't know any better. So I'm going to go to the upper crust. So he makes his way from the lower class to the upper crust. Verse 5, I'll go to the great and will speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But they too, with one accord, and I always thought an accord was more of a middle class vehicle, but nonetheless, they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest will slay them. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar. 
A wolf of the deserts will destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them will be torn in pieces because of because their transgressions are many and their apostasies are numerous. So it turns out both the rich and the poor are all together in this. From the greatest to the least. There's no such thing as class warfare here. Everybody sins. Guess what? The 1% sins just as badly as the 99, and the 99 sins just as badly as the 1, and neither is pure. They all sin. They all fall short of the glory of God. And they all in Judah, and note this phraseology here, it's important. They all had broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Now, if you just heard that sentence, that might not sound like a bad thing. I mean, Jesus broke the yoke of sin off of me, right? He freed me from the bonds of slavery. I was a slave to sin until Jesus came along. But here it's a negative thing. They have all together, small and great, poor and rich, they have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. What yoke? What bonds? What is he talking about? The language here is very precise. The yoke speaks of direction. The bonds, the Hebrew root word is yasar, and it speaks of instruction. The bonds of instruction, the yoke of direction, the yoke and the bonds is talking about Torah. Talking about the Word of God. You have broken free from the yoke of my Word. You have tried to snap yourselves loose from the bonds of my instruction. Listen to the Bible's description of the Word of God. Psalm 19.7 The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they're righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's why I believe you are all here tonight. Because you'll recognize the value, the beauty of the Word of God. because we need to understand the yoke and the bonds do not speak of legalism but they speak of direction and instruction God's word the righteousness the perfection the surety the enlightenment the cleanliness the wisdom of the law all of that we're going to experience in the kingdom because that perfect law that perfect law is in play not in terms of each minute different regulation for Israel But God's Word is the law of the millennium. God's Word is the law of the kingdom. His righteousness will stand. And we will be so blessed in it and blessed by it. We've got to learn from Judah. Learn from Judah. Corruption happens when people abuse freedom to break loose from godly direction and spiritual instruction. That's when we become corrupt when we try to break free of the Word of God, when we try to get loose or out from under the law. David Barton wrote a book called America's Godly Heritage. It's primarily quotes from the Founding Fathers. Let me give you a couple of them. 
John Adams, in a speech to our military in 1798, said the following, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He says, our Constitution, this is amazing, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He's right on. Do you realize why the Constitution is not working right now? It's not because the Constitution has big problems, it's because the people do. The Constitution was written with a Christian worldview in mind. Take away the Christian worldview and the Constitution will not work because the people reject it. The people refuse to live by it. Why should I live by that? After all, that's your morality, it's not mine. Benjamin Franklin agreed. He said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious... They have more need of masters. The more corrupt America becomes, the more laws will be written to try to stave off the corruption. Let me give the most immediate practical example of this. We need more gun control. Absolutely, we need more gun control because... The poor, pathetic human beings in America cannot control themselves with guns. Now, you may agree with that. You know what the problem is? The problem is not the guns. The problem is the immorality that is spreading out in our society. The problem is that, well, Jesus says, because of an increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. The love of the most grow cold. And the more we become immoral in our culture the more we're going to see violence and the more the legislators will respond by saying, we need a law for that. We need a law for that. If we write a law for that, we'll be okay. And we won't. Because they will just set down guns and they'll pick up iron bars. The violence will continue. The issue again is that we try to push back against the morality that is woven into even the Constitution of America And as we push back against it, more laws will be written and the whole thing just becomes a legalistic mess. Jesus said in Matthew 11.28, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. That seems like the last thing you'd want to do. I just got the yoke off of Me. and You want Me to take your yoke upon Me? Yes, take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. But gang, his yoke and his burden are necessary to instruct us and direct us in this life. That's what God intended to show us through the law. The law becoming a yoke, a a band, if you will, binding the people of Israel to the right course. But as they in their humanity would rebel against that law, the law itself would become too heavy to bear.